And now, Hollywood Prospectus. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Hold your applause. Welcome to the Hollywood Prospectus Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I am a writer for Grantland.com. And on the other line, wearing a white suit with a red rose somewhere in Venezuela, it's Andy Greenwald! Somewhere. Hola. I'll tell you where. Hola, mi amigo. <laughs> it's been a long two weeks since I last saw your face in the train station. What's going on, man? Mmm. Oh, I apologize for the husky, husky tenor of my voice. Yeah, you know, you've been it's smoking been too long... many American spirits and beating up some model airplanes. No, you would think that, but actually the problem is the gas mask I brought to do my heist, my heisting upstate, yeah. didn't really filter all the, uh, the gaseous, the thank gas. Lo- thank so. God you timed it right so that all the bad guys were inside the house. I know. <laughs> and you could just take the $12 million neatly stacked on the table. Do you know when they talk about players like taking a hometown discount and it's like in sports and they're sure. like he left he left money on the table? Yeah. Now we know where that table was <laughs> with all the money on it. It was upstate. Well, we should wait. I don't want to joke. I don't want to start by joking about. We're True talking Detective. about wanna, the wanna... finale of True Detective season two, obviously. Uh, and you know, we'll we'll get to some other stuff. We're going to talk about Miles Teller today. Yeah, we're going to talk about the celebrity profile. We're going to talk about. People what do we who, want from artists? What do we want from artists? That's we're going to talk gonna a little about. bit about Fantastic Four, which I, the last Brave American, saw by myself on a Alone. Friday night. You uh, are the real superhero. And we will talk a little bit about Ryan Adams' forthcoming cover record of Taylor yes. Swift's 1989. But first, yes. let's start off a little true D. Okay, can I, can I start here? Yeah, but don't embarrass I'm, me. I'm not. Oh, you think I was going to say nice things about you? Yeah, I thought that was your whole thing. <laughs> No, I got nothing to say about you. Okay. No, I, yes, you wrote, I think, a pretty much perfect piece about this finale that was up on the, the internet on Grandland today. And I really, really appreciated... It was on archive.org. Above all else, <laughs> the Wayback Machine. What I really appreciated was, as I have through your coverage this whole season, was the tone. Thank and so I want to talk about specific things in your piece. But what I wanted to say was this. I want to do a thought experiment. Okay. Because I don't want to start by, by bagging on it, um, which, I, which, again, you didn't do either, and I really appreciated that. Just, like, imagine this, right? Like, what if I told you there could be a HBO eight-part limited series about a cop and a criminal mm-hmm. who kind of like each other, both of whom who have blurred the lines, both of whom who have done terrible things in pursuit of what they thought were worthwhile personal reasons. Okay. Okay? In Los Angeles. Listen. Very specifically said in Los Angeles. Interested. What the two of them, in their own sort of small-time way, come up against are the entrenched forces of industry and of the city. And those could be political. They could be in the police. They could be in the criminal power structure. They could be in Hollywood. They could be in religion. Yeah. The point being that the men, and there are always going to be men, who run those organizations, as it turns out, also feel like they are doing things for their own good reasons, doing terrible things. And those reasons just happen to be more straightforward, like greed or avarice or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the many will always crush the small, and that's your story. I would watch that story. Sure. And as you wrote in your piece, that's kind of, sort of, what Nick Pizzolatto was writing in True Detective Season 2. The problem is, that's not the... If you distilled it down to its purest essence, maybe that's what the story was, but that's not what we got. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you and I know better than he does, and you didn't say that in your piece either. What I feel like more than anything else at the end of this long season was that there was no one, either that he trusted or that he would agree to listen to, who could push back on him like that and say, what's really the story here? What's the best part of this story? How can we make it better? There were none of those voices. Yeah. And what we saw is what happens when no one, when someone just doesn't listen and isn't pushed. And, and you know, when you watch those episodes... And it, it's sort of silly to insider baseball or Monday morning quarterback <laughs> a lot of stuff about the director's chair this season. And I, like I said in the piece, there's like most of the people who directed episodes for the season are really accomplished directors. Daniel yeah, Tyus, some... Justin Lin, John Crowley's got uh, had a pretty good thriller that came out last year. And, and Brooklyn, the Colm Toybin ad- adaption that he's yes. got coming out this year. And, has gotten and this a lot was of a well-directed – this 90-minute episode was had a lot of problems, but direction was not one of them. Yeah, I mean it was fine. I mean the whole thing was that it was fine. And, and what happened was this, this whole season was that it seemed like the – even visually, Pizzolatto's presence was dominating. So that he wanted it to be like two people sitting across a table with no distractions – 
talking at one another. And that happens all the time in the first season. But you can just see the places where Fukunaga's like, I'm going over there. You guys can talk. You guys can be interrogating one another. But we're going to jump time. We're going to shift time. We're going to jump settings. Somebody's going to talk over voiceover while we're showing something else. We're going to take two characters who, in this season, in the second season, would be in, in a two-shot, just sitting there talking to one another. We're going to put them in the background. And there's going to be a bunch of other people in front of them talking. It's what filmmaking is. You're supposed to, like, show people where to look and show people we- what might be important. You talked about this in your piece. You mentioned a specific scene where Fukunaga's camera just seems more curious. Yeah. It seems curious. Yeah, it's Full during stop. the tent revival it, scene in the first season where McConaughey is giving, you know, one of what will be many monologues about pessimism and, like, the falsehood of religion and how we're all basically doomed creatures crawling across a barren landscape or whatever. So, so light comedy. Yeah, but while, he's, while they're talking, and not only I should point out that while McConaughey is saying all this, Woody Harrelson's basically like, you're an asshole. which is something that never really happens this season. And while they're talking, Fukunaga's showing this preacher. He's showing all the people who are sort of sitting in front of them in the church. He's cutting to, like, different stuff. Like, he's his camera's moving around. It's showing action. There There are cutaway shots. Like, that just never really seemed to happen. It was always people in a room stuck, nailed to a table. And we talked about this a lot with The Nick, which is a show we both loved last year, too, where the star of that show is Steven Soderbergh and his camera. Mm-hmm. And the scene that I talked about every time we talked about the show was when two characters were doing a bit of business, and it was very, very um, expositional, procedural, laying pipe, as they call it, business. And there was laying pipe business in that show outside of it, in a, you know, in a less literal sense, yeah. figurative sense. But it's the sort of stuff that is in every TV script. The same, you know, and the stuff that's in, certainly in True Detective, like... When Vince Vaughn goes to the house of Chisani and he goes, where's your husband, comma, the mayor? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, my husband's the mayor? I didn't know that. But yeah. you have to do that stuff because it's expositional. It's, you know, it's It's like, what house whatever. am I at? Yeah. But you have to say that stuff. But what Soderbergh does in The Nick is when two characters are doing that, he's like, okay, that's good. My camera's going to spin around and show the woman mm-hmm. lighting the electric lights. I'm going to look at the windows. I'm going to look at the walls. I'm going to give you a full picture. Mm-hmm. Second thing is, if a director is, a co- is an equal partner... Then the director's in the editing room, and the director or someone can be sitting with the writer, listening to the writer's beautiful dialogue. And be like, this scene is going on too Frank long. and Jordan. Yeah. I, I can't remember the time that I've seen a two-hander scene in a TV show go on for that long. Yeah. With no new information. To the point where where they take off the rings and throw them, it felt like performance art. It was so bizarre. It was crazy. It was. I was just like, "What are they doing?" Can you imagine being at Union Station and you see two yeah. people pull off their rings and just throw them out the door? Like, well, yeah. they're supposed that, to be that, inconspicuous. Like, what? I mean, and you know, they, <laughs> really, the only scene that actually felt so. So, part of that for season success, aside from Fukunaga's curiosity, was what he was curious about, which was the setting of Louisiana and yes. both, like, just the outlying rural regions and these small towns that that um, Russ and Marty would work in, and. I just never felt like for as incredible of resources Los Angeles could have been for this show, I just never felt like the directors or Pizzolatto were particularly curious about it. You know, um, they tried to use postcard places like the Redwoods and the Salt Flats and all these. Which are apparently all just easily attainable. Like, all that is just off the freeway, apparently. You know, and the same thing with, like, driving to – driving upstate, driving to Ojai, like, driving to all these places – there's no sense of the road. There's no sense of distance. It was like, do you remember on The Office when they started to run out of story and like, and and Michael and Jim would start to drive to New York City every episode? Yeah. As if that was just like a quick trip from yeah. Scranton? It, that works maybe on a comedy, but in this show, what's what's the point? It's it's ironic that the that the central thing of the show was this rail line that was supposedly going to connect places. Yeah. When that's what the actual series lacked more than anything else was any kind of connective tissue. So here's what I wanted to ask you about. Um, yeah. One of the things that was 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 my kind of like focus for for watching the show this season was that there was the show that was about the four main characters that was a varying le- it was varying levels of success and then there was the show about this vast conspiracy and this criminal enterprise. This morning, right when I was coming into work, I saw a tweet from the TCAs that was uh, about Greg Berlanti, who does wait. Someone a- tweeted from the TCA <laughs> who does a bunch of those uh, like it does a bunch of the shows on the the W is it the WB or the CW. 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 Uh, like Arrow and The Flash and stuff like that. And they were like, "What?" somebody asked him what makes a good superhero show. And he said, imagine the people without superpowers and start from there. So I thought that 
despite all the really valid criticisms of this show, that if you had started with these four people and taken away all the crime, yeah, it would have been an interesting show. There was there was a lot to go on, given who these characters were. And That's I thought true. that their experiences and their sort of narr- character arcs were very consistent with what Pizzolatto had been writing about in the first season, about how hard it is basically to be alive um, yes. and whether or not it's worth it. I don't understand, though, how a crime writer could screw up the crime this bad. Yeah, it's very <laughs> odd. I mean, we we were giving it a lot of leeway in the beginning because we were sort of hoping it was some kind of meta, almost uh, not intentionally self-defeating, but self-inoculating choice. Yeah, or to, that to, it was to, like to, to, a Chandler-esque mystery that was so complicated that the, you would eventually be like, oh, the point isn't to know who kidnapped the girl or who who stole the, the falcon or whatever you the know what i mean blue diamonds who cares about the diamonds right i it, there was just so many layers and levels to it and and here's the key none of them were interesting were the the mexican guys who who finally did frank interesting no was osip interesting no the only the the, the cop who shot woodrow in the back nope yeah the 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 the, the twi- incestuous killer twins who didn't matter until suddenly they mattered more than anything no and the, any one of those he, things you could have taken out and really yes. explored. You could have explored, like, what really happened during the 90s riots? What kind of under, underground crime shit let's happened choose, during Let's yeah. choose that. Or let's, what happens when the Russian mob comes into a town and is also there when the Mexican cartels are moving into a town? Or, or what about um, Mayor Chizani, played by Richie Custer, who was the, probably the best performer in the whole thing? The most interesting character. He's having the most fun with it. Yeah. Why was he sidelined completely? Or just what happens when there's a very basic murder mystery like the Casper crime and various state agencies pit three cops against one another and they're constantly double-crossing one another? That's just that pure plot is interesting. And then you can have those four characters. I mean, I think Frank was always grafted onto this and it just always felt like a totally different show. It didn't work. It didn't work. And, 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 you know, you, you looked at it from the beginning. Anyone who had seen the scripts could have pointed this out. You can't have a character that supposedly matters that is completely divorced from the main plot to the point where he's only with his wife, who is the worst character in the show. Right. There was no one else for him to have scenes with. Maybe he could have shared the screen with Stan, but that didn't occur to to, to the writer (laughs) ahead of time. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes in the season, maybe in retrospect my favorite scene of the season, was when they went to the mayor's house and his son Tony is there and his wife is there. It does the weird accents, yeah. That kid was good. Yeah. That kid was lively. That kid made a choice, and it was a weird choice, and it suggested Unlikely whole... mayoral candidate, but sure. <laughs> well, how would we know? Because they introduced this actor and this character, and then we never saw him again. Yeah, even though he we... was apparently orchestrating half of the crime in California. We never saw him again. Yeah. How weird is that when you think about it? Um, I, 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 Yeah, I, I don't want to harp on it, because although we will a little bit longer, but the thing I really want to say about this... I don't it's funny to make it's fun to make fun of Stan and some of the other really out there choices. It's not fun to be this disappointed or to be confronted with something this messy. It's disappointing. This is disappointing. I mean, I thought the finale was almost embarrassing at times because they had written and painted and acted themselves into a corner and then there was no other way for it to play out. And I looked at those actors, you know, Farrell and McAdams never broke. Vaughn didn't break either. Vaughn was really he was doing it. He believed in what he was doing in that show last night, even when he was throwing his ring out the window. Yeah, Actors get a bad rap sometimes, and actors can be ridiculous and they can be prima donnas, but they are exposed. You know, they get hung out to dry, and they didn't flinch. They gave yeah, everything they the, could to these in parts. The, in the sort of uh, the, the forging fires of that show, like, you just see how good Farrell is. Yeah, and he, here's... Here's a th- here, here's some questions I really I'm going to put out there in the ether. Maybe people who listen to our show can can help me with this. I'm really curious to know how many pages of True Detective season two agents were shown or given to or allowed to give to their clients. What were they told this was going to be versus what it ended up being? Mm-hmm. At what point during production did the agents start to be like? oh, we thought we were putting them on the Queen Elizabeth, but it's the Titanic. Right. Now, it's not, because I do think that what we were just talking about in terms of their commitment to the parts and their performance, I don't think Colin Farrell or Rachel McAdams are going to lose work because of this. No, I think um, quite the opposite. 
I hope I hope quite the opposite. But I'm very curious. Like the this this is going to come into play in our conversation about Josh Trank and Fantastic Four. But there is there is a second Hollywood that we don't cover and that we don't generally talk or write about because that's sort of the realm of gossip and innuendo and hearsay and quote unquote the real stories. Mm-hmm. The real stories are what we want and they're fascinating sometimes. But this this is a specific example where I would just love to know. I mean, I, I don't you know like what what it what when we heard the production was quote unquote troubled. Did that mean because it was over budget or did it mean because Taylor Kitsch's agent like showed up in Ojai banging on the door being like, what did you do to me? What did you do to my guy? Yeah. Like it's, it's the story. You got of him the showing up to this. five pawn shops and crying in a trailer like five times, you know, like this, this, yeah, the story of the making of this is almost more interesting than, than it. Um, and, I, I had heard there had been like rumors or like. I can't remember where I originally saw this, but, like, rumors about, like, scripts, people who were doing parts, like, had scripts that, uh, aside from the things that they were supposed to do, yeah. it was redacted. That's probably true. That's probably true. That happens a lot in, like, top secret things where you only get your own pages. You don't get the whole thing. Yeah, I guess, uh, really? I mean, like, I can understand why it would be the case in, like, Avengers or something like that. It's hard for me to imagine, like, you wouldn't want to make the best show possible. It's well, like, you know, like you mean by letting the actors know, their, yeah, their or like having giving people or... some clue as to like what the other people are doing or how they're behaving or acting. Like Vince Vaughn clearly never saw dailies of what any other actor was doing on this show. Probably not. They never crossed over, um, except when they were in the you know the secret room of the world's worst bar. He was like, "You have <laughs> dignity because you're a woman." <laughs> oh man, it's just it's just these little things like. I could, we don't have to belabor it. I just, you no, know, I because I, I, I want to move I, on to talk more about like this larger conversation that you're I, talking I, I, about. Okay, but I, I want to make two small points. Sure, we're not going to get too into it this week, and maybe we should consider talking about it like after the finale, so we can actually be be hotter on top of it. But Mr. Robot, mm-hmm. which I think we're both still very into, mm-hmm. and one thing I was really struck by in this week's episode, which was I think the seventh, and again we're we're, we're sort of adopted a policy of not spoiling the show because I think yeah, because I feel like it's something that people it. catch up on, so. Um, so I hope that you do. But this week's episode was really interesting because it had a couple examples of bad guys behaving badly, but in a way that was really cutting, really exposing, and really plausible in that they, they were people who looked like they, – they were these men who looked like men I see on the subway every day in New York or you see at nice restaurants, and they were wearing very nice suits – and they were sitting in rooms with beautiful windows and beautiful views. They were the sort of powerful men that, had they lived in Vinci, would be attending all-night Molly orgies with yeah. Russian prostitutes. But what they were doing here was much more insidious. They were sitting in a room worth millions and millions of dollars between them, and they were just saying horrific things about women and gay people. Right. And then in another scene, a guy who is a disgraced uh, executive, basically a woman comes to him asking for help, and he asks her to do something that is really awful. And it seems very comfortable and easy for him to use this language. And this was an example of the banality of evil that I think interests interests Pizzolatto, but he doesn't seem quite able to pull off because he has this other instinct, which is also valid and interesting sometimes to me, which is the sort of old Hollywood theatrics of noir and of crime. Yeah. And that's where we got in the sort of the raid on the, the orgy where there was that music playing that sounded like it was from a Hitchcock film. Uh, and we got it again in this last episode where, you know, Ray Velcoro, what did, what did Old Dirty Bastard call it? His super sperm? Well, <laughs> Ray Velcoro may have a, may have a dad bod and a ticket, you know, a bum ticker, but he can really, he picks his spots. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that she got knocked up and had a, had a son, you know, and apparently it took 10 or 11 months to contact a, a reporter in South America. But the anyway. The same reporter that Ray tooled up in that house, man. That was yeah. amazing. He's like, yeah, he was excited to pay his respects to his seed. Um, but no, but. That's fine. Like, you can do big Hollywood things like that, mm-hmm. but you kind of can't do both. And, you know, that was, that's, the, that's, that's the postmortem on the season is that it tried to do ev- literally do everything. Okay, so just pure speculation, does HBO want this show back? Yeah, we, we touched on this last week. I'll say it again. The ratings were good. Mm-hmm. The ratings stayed good. The chatter stayed chattering. We're still talking about it. Yep. Um, the internet's still writing about it. Uh, hate watching is watching. So that is a, you know, that, that's something to remember. Also, HBO does not like to admit failure and HBO does not like to create a vacuum. Like they like to be in business of making enough shows, especially now when they're competing with Netflix. My feeling is they don't want this. 
They don't want this again. Right. So they're going to be, they probably have already happened, but they're going to be a series of very uncomfortable conversations, some of which might suggest, might involve suggesting other people being brought on to help, some of which might suggest partnering with a filmmaker again, which I'm sure a filmmaker probably doesn't want to do, uh, making a writer's room, going back to literally the first season, like two people, yeah, two time periods. Yeah. Here, my suggestion would be, and no one's really waiting for it, but here would be my suggestion, would be you green light it, but you announce when you green light it that season three will premiere in January 2017 uh, or later or spring 2017. You give a long, 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 yeah. long, long bit of track so that they can get it right before they start it, which did not happen this year because the amount of care and obsession that went into the hashtags was more exciting and fun than the actual show. What do you uh, think? I think that I would really like it to come back. Um, I still, I, I still think it's a really interesting idea for a show, and I think I understand. And, and you know what the thing is? Is it's it's weird. I and there's part of me that doesn't want this to have a writers' room. Like, I, there's part yes. of me that doesn't want this to be like any other cop show. It's still interesting for that reason. And yeah. and the idea that <clears throat> with the right collaborators, he could find the same heights that he found the first season, which I know you don't like, blah, blah, blah. But there's part of me that I almost don't want some bland version of this. You know what I mean? I I agree. Here, can I I make my dream suggestion? This would be my dream scenario. HBO and Pizzolatto, they have a production deal. They they up it. They double it. They're whatever. They announce a project, his dream project, whether it's adapting something of of someone else's or his own or whatever. He goes off and does that. HBO retains the rights to the True Detective as a franchise. And they start handing it off to different people season by season. So, you know, the, a guy you had on your podcast uh, a while ago, like Don Winslow, mm-hmm. can do it. Um, maybe, maybe I mean, Vince Gilligan is busy, but like someone like Vince Gilligan can do, could do it. Um, think of whatever other crime writers David we like. Fincher, I mean, I mean, that seems like that's a relationship that's really going places between them. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> but do you remember a couple of years ago, um, well, a lot of years ago now, the, uh, the publishing line called Hard Case Crime launched, mm-hmm. and it was to reprint old pulp crime novels, but then also people like like Stephen King and others wrote pulp yeah. novels in the style of it. I wish the True Detective could become a franchise like that, where people could just line up and you'd be like, okay, you get to make your eight-episode series, and here's your version of a pulp noir. Right. we move on. But that's never going to happen. Hey, before we move on, let's take a break in today's podcast to talk about our sponsor, SeatGeek. It's the best way for fans to save money on sports and concert tickets. SeatGeek aggregates tickets from every major ticket site online and puts them all in one place to make comparison shopping for tickets easy. It's basically like Kayak.com for sports and concert tickets. SeatGeek also has technology called DealScore that calculates what every ticket in the building is worth. Good deals are represented as big green dots on the map, and bad deals are shown as small red dots. So it's easy to see at a glance which tickets will save you the most money. For a limited time only, use promo code HOLLYWOOD in the SeatGeek app or website and get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. Again, to redeem your promo code and save $20, use HOLLYWOOD, like the name of our podcast, to save on your first SeatGeek purchase today. Well, let's talk a little bit about, go back to what you're talking about here with what we want to know about Hollywood versus what we do know about Hollywood, but versus yeah. what we really want to talk about. So this weekend, um, Fantastic Four opened. It finished second in the box office, which is Oof. pretty bad for a film with the budget and the expectations that this had going into it. The movie was directed by Josh Trank, who formerly directed a really great uh, superhero sci-fi action movie. Interesting called, movie. Uh, I liked it a lot. Uh, I, I wasn't saying that to be dis- disparaging. I just meant it, it wasn't yeah, when you say it's a superhero uh, movie. It was more but it was like called, found footage, called Chronicle, creepy. and it starred Michael B. Jordan and Dane DeHaan. Um, Trank was given the reins to Fantastic Four to reboot that for uh, Fox, and was uh, pretty closely after that, or around when this would be either beginning to shoot or was finishing shooting or whatever, was announced to be one of the Star Wars directors. I think he was going to do one of the anthology movies. He was going to do a, a bounty hunter one-off movie. So he was going to do the one that gareth edwards wound up getting no that was announced at the same time gareth edwards is doing rogue one which is a you know set in between the original trilogy about stealing the plans for the death star right uh this is rumored to be a boba fett movie okay like a bounty hunter because they're phil lord and chris miller making a han solo prequel yeah movie that basically the star wars universe 
the, yeah, Miller and Lord. The, the, the Star Wars, what they're doing, with Lu- what, what Lucasfilm and, and Star Wars and Disney are doing, is they're going to have a Star Wars movie every year, basically. Yeah. So there's the core movies, and then they're going to have these interesting, potentially interesting, interesting sounding, certainly, spinoffs. Right. And he was so he listed was as one of those. listed as one of those people. As the year went on, I guess sort of around January or something, uh, I think it definitely had been one of those movies where, like, they will show you stuff from these movies as soon as they possibly can. Like, Batman yes. vs. Superman is not coming out until next year, yes. and we've already had two trailers, you know. It, they will always be down to, like, stoke some fires but, and go to Comic-Con and get people excited about this, but they were not doing that with Fantastic Four. Bef- before we even get into the specifics of what we heard, let's also talk about how this movie was born from chaos, like, born from sure. the darkness. This, like, it, this, this movie exists... For one reason and one reason alone, which is that Fox did not want the rights to the Fantastic Four to revert back to Marvel. Right. Because just as the quick primer, uh, when Marvel was a not successful company, they sold the rights to some of their most popular characters to other studios to develop as properties. Right. To keep themselves in business, basically. To keep themselves in business and to to maybe finally get a superhero movie made. Because there was a time, believe it or not, when that seemed like an impossibility. So Fox got... The X-Men universe and Fantastic Four. Sony had uh, Spider-Man. I believe Sony also had Daredevil, but when they, co- when they couldn't make another movie after the Ben Affleck movie bombed, those rights reverted back to Marvel, and now we have the TV series. Mm-hmm. So Marvel is basically... And then Marvel took its what many people thought were their leftovers and turned it into this juggernaut. Yeah. So Fox has done okay by the X-Men, but Fantastic Four, after, even though those two movies actually made money, the, the Tim Story movies with Chris Evans and yeah. Michael Chiklis... Uh, no one thought they were particularly good. Not comic book fans, not fans, not anybody. Right. Um, so they were desperate to redo it. So I, they needed to make this movie regardless of whether it was a good movie or not. And a lot of the choices they made early on were interesting but also divisive in that people who are comic fans feel like the, the thing that – well, the thing that Kevin Feige at Marvel, people give him a lot of credit for is that he, like, identifies the core thing. You know, like Tony Stark is a a rich asshole with a cool suit. Mm-hmm. Captain America, man out of time. And, uh, you know, now that the rights... Sony didn't lose the rights to Spider-Man, but they cried uncle and like, said, okay, help Marvel, us. help us. <laughs> yeah. You do this. We'll just share it. Yeah. And that's why I'm really impressed with what they're doing with Spider-Man, which is like, no more origin stories. He's in high school. We're done. Like, that's what it should yeah. be. He doesn't need I'm to fight Jamie Foxx sure. in yeah. Times Square. <laughs> yeah, I'm done too. Exactly. Um, what people like about Fantastic Four often is that it's a family. Right. Uh, and it's sort of like about bright space adventurers, like science science fiction, you know, literally with an emphasis on science. Trank is not your guy for that. And it's kind of interesting, right? Because when he was talking about accepting this, he was he, the things he said in his interviews were like, I'm really into Cronenberg and body horror. Yeah. Which is interesting and true, because if you are a bunch of young people and you go to another dimension, and you come back and one of you is turned into a rock monster and one of you could stretch, like, that's pretty horrific. Yeah, so... But that... That's not necessarily what longtime Fantastic Four fans are into. So they, they made this movie. They shot in Louisiana. There's just no footage coming out. There are starting to be grumbles. And I was kind of like, remember when the grumbles were happening? I was like, why don't you just, like, relax and let, let the dude make his movie and not, not need a teaser every five seconds? But those grumbles got louder. And then there was a trailer, which I thought was pretty good. The first trailer, which yeah, the made trailer it look was very dark good. and made it look like very, like, confused and complicated people who were, you know basically trying to decide what to do with these newfound powers they had and didn't look unlike chronicle um but it didn't show a lot it didn't it showed like johnny storm flame on uh never showed stretching or anything like that um and then there were some stories coming out yeah so i don't remember where the first stories about trank started popping up there were the reshoots there were and the, the rumor was right. that he was removed from the reshoots. Right, and that, like, Simon Kinberg and, and his squad and, from, from Fox were, like, handling that. And Simon Kinberg is a screenwriter who's been involved with the X-Men franchise, and now, an invo- now he's involved with the Star Wars franchise. He co-wrote this screenplay. Right. And the rumors were that Trank was, like, removed from reshoots right. and that Kinberg was And that there were some issues on set, the most salacious of which w- was... Uh, that Trank was being sued for like a hundred thousand dollars by and the damages. owner of the house that he had been staying in because of the damage his small dogs had caused. Can't trust the small dogs. Yeah, that's right. Um, so these things go on, it, but the the time marches on. They keep sort of promoting it, but just not the way you think they would be promoting something we're happy about. And increasingly, it becomes obvious that like there have not been that many like preview screenings, and that. They are not going to show it to critics until very late in the week or something like that. And then... 
what you should also add in the middle of this Trank is has is uh, has a cold and doesn't show up for the announcement of the Star, Star Wars, Wars movies. movies, leading to speculation that he has been disinvited to attend this event. Yeah. Later confirmed that he has been removed from the Mut- project. Well, they mutually parted so that he could work on original material after working on a franchise for so long. That's right. Yeah. Because this and this is sort of what we're getting at, which is that there is the mutually beneficial double speak. Right. That covers much more interesting details. So and, the embargo breaks. People start putting up their reviews. They are universally negative. I think that there's a little bit of, like, shade there because these, on. a lot of these critics weren't given the materials they usually are. You know, like, these websites, a lot of these superhero websites function primarily on, like, a oh, yeah. uh, supply train of content. You know, here's a clip. Here's a, con- here's, a, here's, an ex- here's a preview. Here's a teaser. Here's Miles Teller talking about what these plans for Fantastic Four 2 or whatever. And they really weren't getting that with Fantastic Four. I mean, That's they're not, not for lack of trying. So reviews are terrible. The Rotten Tomato score is somewhere around 10%, 12%, which is really bad. Like, you can watch, it, like... The- That's less than Mordecai, the Johnny Depp movie from earlier in the year. And then in the middle of the week or like Thursday or Wednesday, Trank tweets uh, that he had a version of this film, I think done like a year ago or whatever. A year ago, I had a version of this film that would have been fantastic and critics would have loved it. You'll never see it. You'll likely never see it. That's reality, though. He deleted that tweet. That was Thursday night. Yeah, and there was a huge sort of debate about whether or not, like, was he breaking this Omerita in Hollywood where you're not supposed to, like, throw anybody under the bus? And what about all the hardworking people on this film that, you know, like, now have just had, like, their their live like, their professional lives jeopardized by this or whatever? You know, I mean, like, I, I don't really know what, what that really would have caused the any impact in the pocket of the grip from Fantastic Four. But it certainly wasn't, like, great behavior. But on the other hand, it's like Josh Trank tried to make a movie. He probably thought he had, like, the movie he wanted. And somewhere along the line, they decided to tell him that that was not the case. Um, So I understand his frustration. I went and saw this movie on Friday. Sorry for the long preamble. But obviously, this is one of the more interesting stories come out about the making of a film. Uh, I am not trying to hot take you here. It was not that much like appreciably worse than any other like kind of average comic book movie like i didn't find it i i didn't like for instance i didn't think it was that much worse than ultron it's not as good as ultron it's not like as well written or characters aren't as interesting or whatever the actors just didn't do as good of a job but in terms of like it's not any more stupid than any other thing where there's a black hole opens and they have to close it yeah which is like most movies but what i've heard and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, is that it is 90% exposition in origin. Yes. People are not that interested. There in. was Although, actually as you a pointed point out, where, Chronicle was that. Yeah, I was at a 6.30 Friday night show with 10 other people. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> um, and about an hour and 10 minutes into it, I was like, they're not the Fantastic Four yet. Right, and isn't... so like they're don't still they, like, scientist kids. And, and isn't there a point where it's just like one year later and they're yes. like suddenly in the military so the and then they fight... 40 minutes are basically an Amblin movie about, like, how cool science is and, like, these, like, lovable kids (laughs) who are, like, trying to, like, they make a teleportation device and they go to a science fair and then they go to a new school. But there's, like, this weird guy, Victor Von Doom, who comes back to the school and they build a teleportation. It's, like, keeps going with that. And then I'm spoiling this movie. I don't really care. They go to the negative zone. Is that Planet Zero or whatever? But apparently they change the name of it. Planet Zero, I think they call it. Yes. Uh, and there's like an eruption and they all get covered in bad lava and, you know. As opposed to that good lava. That, that good lava. That, that, that opposite of H2O lava. Yeah. And so the first act is very much Amblin Spielberg. The second act is Trank. And that is body horror. This is, and that is like, I'm disgusting because I'm made of rocks now. But this isn't the three act structure you're saying because the third act is like the. Yeah. And then the third act, which is like 25 minutes long and was clearly directed by like John Director, you know, is. <laughs> An inexplicable battle on the moon, or like not on the moon, but it's like it might as well be, where they're just like fighting Doctor Doom and trying to close a black hole that's starting to suck up part of some pl- part of Earth, uh, but does it seems to mostly just get cars because that's always like what happens with black cars holes. are easy to pick up in <laughs> yeah. the black holes. Um, Mars the second needs act cars. is like kind of cool. It's like what if you were Reed Richards? That would be gross, you know. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and it's. It's very much just like a people who are almost and now and it's interesting because Johnny Storm is like I, this is really cool like I'm I'm the Human Torch he's the only one that got the cool power but when he's first like strapped down on a table 
and his father, who's played by Reggie Cathy, is like looking at him, and it, there's it's like actually a pretty cool mo- moment where that the dad is like, ah, my my son's on fire, you know, like this, <laughs> yeah. is, this sucks. Uh, it's an amazing classic, classic but, dad stuff, but it's an amazing like, and then it just like switches out, and like Miles Teller has to walk around being like, we can't beat him alone, but we can beat him together. We could be fantastic. Yeah. So let me add, here's us. what I wanted to ask you. You kind of alluded to this. Does anybody like like the Fantastic Four? Because they seem really corny. Like, yes, it's a great point. Uh, they're like, why? People, why this? Because it's like a cool group of people. Like, some people really love them. Like, they are the first. For the first the corniness. Comic, no, the first comic book Marvel ever published was Fantastic Four number one. So everything that is Marvel came from the Fantastic Four. Okay. Because the you know the all the things that that made both the comic book company a success and ultimately the film universe a success is there in the first issue. It's Stanley and Jack Kirby, yes, but it's also, you know, their, their, their family. There's the thing who has these powers but hates it. This idea of, you know, internal conflict as well as external conflict is all there. This, the essential idea of them as family and as explorers has been taken on by some of the best writers and creators in comics, and, it, and they've done amazing, really cool things with it. Mm-hmm. There have also been great fallow periods of just stupidity and boredom <laughs> yeah. and corniness where they're essentially set in the 60s. The, some of the most interesting things that Marvel has done in the last few years has been with Reed Richards, because the one consistent in the 50-plus years that the comic has existed, or, you know, or that the character has existed, is that the the burden and possibility of being the smartest man in the world, mm. maybe the smartest man in the universe. And the idea that he is ignoring his family because he has this purpose to go further and further. And so Marvel for a while had this thing called Ultimate Comics, which was like a rebrand, like reboot, younger version of the universe. Okay. And they are now folding that into the main universe. But in that universe, Reed Richards became the greatest villain in the history of the world oh. uh, because of his ambition and of his, of his ego and of his genius. That's interesting. That's, that is alluded to in the sh- in the movie of like that that Reed's main motivating factor is his ambition. And, and to be I think famous. the ultimate Fantastic Four comic was more the influence for the movie than anything else. Okay, this, I think there was like the Baxter Institute or something. That's yeah. all from that that the Baxter comic Foundation. Book. Okay, as opposed to in the in the real comic, it's like the Baxter Building. It's their cool uh, uh, skyscraper. They get that at the end. Yeah. Oh, they get that. So good. It's the best in a mountain world. somewhere. Yeah. It, in the you know I gave in my last like nerd explaining segment on this show sure. I talked about how like the whole Marvel universe is collapsing and they're bringing in the Ultimate Universe and there's this thing called Secret Wars and Doom and Reed Richards have been a really central part of that and one of the reason the thing for the last three years has been the the universe is collapsing and Reed Richards refuses to accept that so he will go to any length to stop like it's it physically collapsing or like comic like, books like are different, collapsing. Di- no, different uh, different universes, multiverses are collapsing. Oh, so every time you. our universe comes near another one, only one can survive. So Reed Richards is out there growing a beard and destroying universes to save ours, which it is kind of crazy. Father John Misty. <laughs> it does sound like that. That's a very good analogy. Um, anyway, personally, I, my the best version of that of those characters that I've read in a while was this writer Matt Fraction, who I really like, and he had this he had he wrote Fantastic Four, but also a companion book called. Uh, uh, Future Foundation, which is just about like smart kids trying to do stuff. And like, he also cool. wrote the like Hawkeye that was like the long that goodbye, I love. Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, um, anyway, all that is to say, no, there is no reason for this to exist other than copyrights, unless you have a deep abiding reason to make it. And let's go full circle. I actually believe that Josh Trank had a take. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he had a version that maybe wouldn't have pleased comic book fans, which is fine. Maybe wouldn't have pleased, you know, $300 million worth of American box office attendees. But he could have made an interesting movie. But the forces that be and the, the nature in which this was created could not support that. So this weekend it, so, I, I saw another movie, which was called The Gift, uh, which is written and directed by Joel Edgerton, who is an actor that... He made that movie? I yeah. thought he was just in it. Yeah, And it's produced by Blumhouse, Jason Bloom, who does a lot of... Um, uh, or Blumhouse. I just I never know the pronunciation of these things. Shameful. But he makes a lot of very inexpensive horror films that wind up being very profitable because they, he'll make something for like six or seven or twelve million dollars, and they go makes thirty or forty, and that's just that they do very well in demand, etc. Anyway, um, the gift is a perfect example of like this is, happens three or four times a year when you go go to the movies and you'll see something. And you're just like, why isn't everything this good? 
Oh, it's really that good? It's awesome. It's incredible. It's like a great psychological thriller in the tradition of like the 90s thrillers that we grew up like seeing in high school, like Hand the Rocks the Cradle. I mean, it's even better than that probably because it doesn't, yeah. it has a little bit of an edge to it. But you're just like, why don't they do this? Why don't they just let good people make good movies in the right way with good actors? And but like, it's the, it's the budget slots, right? Like, you, sure, like you're saying, I'm sure they, they it found is. a model that works. But I don't, but, but the whole reason Dark Knight and Batman Begins worked and, and even Dark Knight Rises worked wasn't because of budget slots. It was because they were like, you seem like you know what you're doing. Why don't you go ahead and do that? Go do it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, I, it's it, like these aren't – this isn't like a mystery. And I understand that actually I'm I'm sure given what we've read about this stuff and, and, and all that, like that Fox may have very well been like, please go make a good movie, Josh Trank. And then it was like – we hear you are like icing out yeah. Kate Mara and you've got four dogs in a house and also like the, you're just not going to bring this movie in in any kind of showable way. This is this is the other thing that's worth talking about because I think you and I like saw that tweet from Josh Trank and I was like this guy is too real. Yeah. Like I actually appreciate that he is just going to be like well that this is it. Like I don't care yeah. what the companies are going to do to me. And by the way, he can't, I don't think he can make it worse considering he is now pissed off Fox and Disney. Like there aren't that many Yeah, that dude like con- the tweets before that he around. was like kind of thirst tweeting about like wanting to make Columbo like oh right with Mark Ruffalo yeah Yeah. good luck but no he'll make I mean people who are talented can make stuff eventually but yeah so there's the version of that where he's this auteur who was frustrated by the system and wasn't prepared for it as opposed to Colin Trevorrow who seemed to be able to slide right into that world and make a half a billion dollar movie with Jurassic World but there's also the other stories which you never know what what's true or what's not I'd love again if people know let us know because I would love to know the truth here because obviously there's a lot of he said he said back and forth here right but the version of the story the version that came out in that you know largely unnamed uh, source the EW piece EW piece yeah is basically he sounds like an asshole yeah which is not cool on any any workplace like even if you are some sort of genius you cannot scream at your crew you cannot freeze out one of the stars of your film and treat her like dirt because you didn't want to cast her. Right. First of all, if there's anyone I'm worried about in this movie, it's the superior Mara, Kate Mara. Like, because your girl took a ding this week, too, Rooney, because her uh, David Fincher show for HBO got canned. Utopia. But the glory of Kate... You cannot lose if you do not play, my man. (laughs) That's right. The glory of Kate... First of all, like Rudy yeah, is I, just smoking a fat one on the sidelines, being like, "You go ahead, keep keep kidding." Yeah, she's going to get an Oscar this year too, right? For that that uh, the t- the t- sure. the who made that movie? The the movie with Cape uh, Blanchett Todd, that went crazy. Todd Haynes. Todd Haynes. Yeah. Anyway, Todd gotta Colts. respect the Mara yeah. brand, but uh, that's that's what's interesting here because this does seem like a perfect storm between studio incompetence and potentially auteur craziness. And it's interesting. But so let's segue to our other, like, when keeping it real goes wrong. So one of the other elements of this entire Fantastic Four story was that um, Trank had fought very hard to get someone to star in Fantastic Four that the studio was sort of not into. And that's Miles Teller. Now, uh, I can verify that because for some masochistic reason, I listened to, I think, three hours. I think it's at three hours now of a four-part podcast between Kevin Smith and Josh Trank, which so far has not acknowledged that there's anything wrong with Fantastic Four. We've only just had, like, 40 minutes of talking about Fantastic Four. When was this recorded? I don't know, actually. It's it's called the Fat Man on Batman podcast, I think it's called. Sounds great. And it's Kevin Smith's, like, comic book podcast. Um, Okay. But... As opposed opposed to our comic book podcast (laughs) that we do now. Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) Um... (coughs) Trank sounds psyched about being the director of this movie, though. I don't know when. I mean, he also sounds pretty done with it. He was like, yeah, it's, like, done. The trailer's out. And, like, Fox is very happy with it. So I don't know whether this was, like, when this was recorded. But in one, the most important thing is that Trank had thought about casting Miles Teller in Chronicle and was like, I want to work with this guy. Got him in Fantastic Four. It seemed like a really smart idea since Miles Teller was coming off of Whiplash. And, um... And he's in the Divergent movie, so he had, like, a mainstream yeah, profile. Like, yeah, he's Moss Teller. You know, like, he's definitely an up-and-coming actor. And it's smart to get people in those movies on their way up. You know, that's yeah, what you the Avengers in. were kind of smart about, like, reviving Chris Evans. Not reviving, but, like, getting Chris Evans and these people who are probably not, like, 
busy doing like my left foot anytime soon, you know, but just, but still like on the come up and you lock them in and you're like, we own you for 10 more years. So well, that's what X-Men did with Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, off exactly. Bone. still they, doing X-Men movies. And when I see, like, I feel like we need to free her. Like yeah. we need to send in the team of whoever, like in Michael Bay's Benghazi movie, like the John Krasinski, you know, paratroopers. <laughs> can we send them to Toronto to rescue Jennifer Lawrence from the set of X-Men? Because I can't enough. wait to talk about the Benghazi movie. Enough. Right. So, Tell her, uh, tell her I had a bad week, too. Tell her I had a bad week. Um, so a lot of people have been comparing this Miles Teller profile that's in Esquire to the Jeremy Renner interview in Playboy yeah. that we talked about. Esquire we and Playboy love. are big big magazines for both of us. Definitely. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm looking at it right now. I'm looking at this Miles Teller interview written in the second person. Um and everybody was like, oh, Teller, what, a, what an idiot. Like, can't wait for you guys to rip him up. I'm, I'm team Teller. Wait, listen, here's the thing. I feel like there's more nuance here. I don't think people wanted us to go in after Well, okay, but they were like, this is incredible in the same lack of self-awareness way. Yes. Yeah. He seems like a monstrous, raging prick. Like, he seems like a terrible person and a very young, dumb kid. Uh-huh. And I don't think he's a terrible person. Not a terrible person. That's right. He 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 behaves in a terrible. Let me rephrase. I agree. I should. Let know. me ask you. So he's why do you a fine think person? That? Why do you think that specifically? But what, but let me say because here's the thing. You you know you know even if you don't want to play the game you know if you were meeting with a reporter and you were eating food. <laughs> side note: never eat food with a reporter. Yeah, it didn't work for MIA. It it, it never works for anyone. Uh you know that everything you're doing is on the record. And the way that he acts, like Renner did, is someone who has been in a self-sustaining bubble for a while, Mm -hmm. where no one steps in and be like, are you sure you want to talk like that about someone? Are you sure you want to talk like that about yourself? Right. Because you sound like an asshole. Like someone, you know, in the same way that someone needed to check Pizzolatto in the writer's room, I feel like someone needs to, like, check these people in the way they talk. Okay. That said... I agree with you. I am also – I thought that – and I thought actually he got off pretty scot-free because I think the profiler of the piece, whose name I'm forgetting uh, – Anna Peel. Anna Peel was relatively easy on him because she's team teller even though he said crazy things to her. Yeah, she says that she liked him on Twitter. I okay. No, so no. Like, she says she likes him as an actor and she appreciates his talents. And so what, the reason why I think we're both team teller is because we want creative people and artists to be lunatics. Like, good work can come from that. Yeah. As long as he's not... There's a difference between, you know, being awful to the PAs and the catering crew, which is apparently what Trank may or may not have done. Like, I think that's kind of bad behavior. I think people who aren't nice to waiters are probably not good people. But for Teller to be, like, just bragging about his tattoos and about cutting meat and just then just throwing, like, total eclipse of the heart shade on Aaron Eckhart at the end of the piece. <laughs> the Eckhart like, thing I, is pretty amazing. When he's um, like, I first met Aaron Eckhart, he was, like, hot and talented, and I was so odd to work with him, and now I'm doing a movie where I'm a hot boxer, and he looks like garbage, and I respect <laughs> that. So, all I'm saying is there's a difference between, like, you don't need to be a good person to be a good artist, but being interesting is such a commodity, rare commodity now, and I appreciate it. I love this profile. I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea about it, but I think you should have known better. I think that... So the, the cutting the meat thing is an interesting situation because I just want to see the receipts on this one. I just, I just want I just want to know I would I would pay real money to get the transcript of like what these exchanges were like because a lot of it is like and then he says this or it's not quoted but he says something like this like he has a very uh, inappropriate comment about what his junk looks like in comparison to glassware. Yes, but like I would just and like apparently to see... he leads with that. Yeah, which is probably apparently not true. the piece. Right, and the, the thing you're talking about is he gets like a salad or something like that, and she gets pork belly, and she's like, it's like it looks good or whatever, and he's like, can you cut me a piece of that? But she makes it sound like he's like, I'm an infant, cut my food for me. No, no, no. She says he's he's bragging about his back muscles. She offers him some, and he can't do it. He physically cannot. I thought he was like, Peyton, can you cut me a piece of that? Unlike Peyton Manning, he cannot cut that meat. <laughs> so. <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, like, this is, there's a difference between this piece, and there was a run of pieces that GQ and Esquire ran a couple years ago. One of them was on Chris Evans, where they would send people out with these actors and set them up in very, very ridiculous scenarios that their publicists somehow agreed to, and there was, they were, like, trapped. There was no way for them to come out right. looking good. Uh, I'm not a fan of that 
sort of piece. This piece was just a dinner, and clearly they didn't give her any more access. And she interviewed the real him. And I would imagine, this is, here's my takeaway from this piece, and I, I don't know if, if I'm right or wrong, maybe people who know Miles Teller who have been, you know, doing hacky sack with him at Napa music festivals can confirm or deny. <laughs> but my feeling is if you know Miles Teller in real life and you read this piece, you'd be like, well, that's Miles Teller. Huh. Maybe not the entirety of Miles Teller. Right. But I imagine that he's represented there. But also, like, do you remember we talked about this a few years ago? Like, the, the Leo DiCaprio profile in New York Magazine, which is basically, like, he calls his group of friends the Pussy Posse, and he is literally cleaving the Thor's hammer through Manhattan nightlife <laughs> yes. with Tobey Maguire and, yes. and what's his name, the magician who holds his breath. Like, this is a tradition. If you are an actor, particularly, of a certain age, of a certain level of success, this I is think who that you are. If that Leo DiCaprio article had come out today, there would be a much different reception for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and it's interesting to... to and maybe to there should be. Or maybe I'm, it's good. I am pro-interesting lunatics in almost everything except my personal life. But, <laughs> it's too bad. But, we, you you know, but like, like Jason, I know. Jason Concepcion tweeted like his top three profiles of the year, and they're all great. and But they're all different. Yeah. See, with the, the Renner Q&A in Playboy <laughs> is a fascinating, like, peek inside of a wild bubble. <laughs> a beautifully appointed bubble. It's called the housing bubble. <laughs> it's called the housing bubble. <laughs> This one is, you know, this is just kind of a guy caught in a moment. And I think it's a pretty good snapshot of a vibe, even if it's not all entirely in, in, in uh, sequential order. The Pizzolatto piece is interesting because, yeah, he comes off like a crazy person in it. But the person who wrote the piece comes off like a crazier sure. person. Because if you, you know, we didn't even talk about this piece on the podcast, really. But basically, the guy is like, what is it like to be a god? <laughs> what is it like to be someone who can craft words out of gold and rain them down on us? Yeah, the alchemist. Oh. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. But in general, as some people who we cover the business, sort of, we talk about it, we interview people, we want personality, always. And and that quote you said, I think, is kind of damning when Trank said in a good mood, well, Fox is happy with it. Yeah. That's kind of where we are with these movies. And if, if you know, in Ultron, I bet everyone was kind of happy with it. But no one was uh, really excited about it. Yeah, but what's interesting about, about Ultron is that that there were plenty of articles leading up to the release of that movie where Whedon was just like, I'm done. That's true. He was really letting, letting the, the light in. And I think that he actually did... He actually – okay, this is actually segues into what I wanted to talk about next anyway. He actually did something very interesting and very social media era of it, which was turn the spotlight inward to just deflect from maybe was there any reshoots or was there any right. tinkering on Ultron. He was like, I'm exhausted and I need to take a break from this stuff and it's very grating for me to have to do this for three years. You know, It takes three years to make these movies or whatever. Yeah. <coughs> That would have been a more interesting – I mean I think Trey tried to do that when he was like, yeah, I'm not going to do Star Wars because I want to make an original – something original because Which, I've been working on a si- franchise for a while. Sidebar, I'd rather that. That's good. Sure. He should. Yeah. Um, but the, the, this Teller article and like Trank being kind of salty about it doesn't really play well in an era when these kinds of – any statement you make is going to get like kicked a couple of times to see if it leaks out of take. You know, So it, it's yeah. sort of fascinating – to watch some people play it well and some people not play it well. Yeah, and they all have to play. And and that's why the person who come the, out of this crazy summer and all the cra- summer season and tentpole movies, the the, the 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 interview I keep coming back to or the series of interviews where he said this in a lot of them, but uh, Peyton Reed, who directed Ant-Man, mm-hmm. and he talked with Alex Papadimus on our site and he, he talked a lot about the movie. This is a guy, he's like 50 years old. He directed Super Chunk videos that we loved. He directed Bring It On with Kirsten Dunst, which I love. Uh, and he's directed a bunch of other movies, you know, Down with Love with uh, Ewan McGregor, yeah, uh, Yes Man, I think he directed. But he's a director, and he he makes a good living, and he has a life, and he has a family. And you know, everyone was going crazy about oh, Edgar Wright was a visionary; he would have made Ant Man so good. Uh, Peyton Reed was like, "This was fun. I like directing movies. Yeah, I had a script. <laughs> I thought we had some fun actors, and I did the best version of it I could. And like that is a kind of professionalism that is the flip side, maybe, sure. of the lunatic, but it is." equally valid and i kind of you know i respected that like i i feel like he at least was being honest he was also being honest that's where i've landed he was also being honest it's yeah a different kind of exactly honesty. and and honesty so the, the idea of sharing and the idea of of keeping people as part of your creative process plays into what i wanted to, we wanted to talk about last year which is um last week much to our delight 
Ryan uh, Adams announced what would have been a long rumored thing, which uh, was that he was going to record a song for song cover album of Taylor Swift's nineteen. Wait, was it rumored? Because I didn't he know had mentioned he it before that he had covered that he had been working on it. Okay, um, and he had put out a record last year around the same time as when he put out his self-titled soul album he put out a record called 1984 which is just like a very raucous like who's do kind of uh pop punk record that he right. just put out as like a spirit of the music that he loved in 1984 and um he has since the out those two albums came out last year has been putting out a series of three song singles that come out like once every like nine weeks it seems like he, he this is a dude who is fascinating to us so i think he's reasons. put out about 12 to 15 other songs since those two albums he yeah. put out a huge live at carnegie hall set he has been touring pretty relentlessly and then um on twitter last week and on instagram started talking about making this 1989 record which he was going to make with his band and i think that the idea the concept is the smiths covering 1989 i think what he said Not is like that's sort of what he hears in his head right but it sounds like it. I mean, some of the so he's put up a series of Instagram videos of him making Bad Blood and Out of the Woods and Style. He's, and he's going song by song. Yeah, he's putting up these like quick thirty second clips, and he's working and, on the record, much to the delight of Taylor Swift, which is nice. Also, yeah. Let, let me can I say just jump in to say this is the greatest thing that I've ever heard. <laughs> I am more excited about this than just about anything else in the world. Here's what I want to say to you, Chris. Yeah, 1989 is pretty close to a perfect album. Better if you just lop off the last three songs. I'm not into this because, like, Ryan Adams, because, you know, he plays guitar. He's going to indie-fy it. Legitimizing this in any way. I'm just thrilled for two reasons. One, because it's proving that these are terrific songs Mm -hmm. and can be, you know, uh, performed and interpreted in a lot of ways. But two, he made a reference to what he was, the style he was making, using on one of the songs, one of my favorites, which is All You Had to Do Is Stay. And he called it the Reverb Police, Eddie and the Cruisers 3. (laughs) I want to call the reverb police on everything. Yeah. That is the sound I want to listen to. And so all I've listened to for a week is the 30-second Instagram video of all you had to do is stay. I want to hear this whole thing so badly. So this because is like- what he's doing is this shimmery dream pop version of these songs. And it's like, he's this crazy savant. And we talked about him before. He has his own studio. He got sober. All he cares about is Star Wars and making songs. And he's all out of Star Wars. Yeah. And he's just like, well, it's better because these songs are perfect. And he's like, well, okay, now I just know how to make them sound with Mellotrons and this is my. So this is the thing is that, like, Ryan Adams has gone through several different iterations of, of fame and lack of fame over the course of, like, our adult lives. I mean, like, we've kind of grown up with him. I don't, it doesn't really matter. Aww. but it, No, but it is true. I mean, like, he yeah. was, he's around our age and he's been making records for as long as you and I have been friends. It's insane to finally see that, like, this dude's way of working, which is like, hope you like my album, here's three more singles, which yeah. is exactly, like, what people want right now, is like, you know what would be cool, dude, is if you had a band called Vampires. Cool, I'm starting a band called Vampires, here's the yeah. three-song single. You know, like, you know what would be cool is if you made 1989 cover record. Oh, neat, I have a studio and four guys who hang around there, we play pinball, let's make 1989. Yeah, exactly. And it's, right. like, perfectly timed and calibrated for the way we sort of digest culture now, which often makes me nauseous but this is actually awesome like i'm like i wonder what he's going to do next we probably won't have to wait very long to find out that's a great point but i also think that the thing about him that's always been frustrating to some of his fans or part-time fans not his truly devoted cracked down everything fans is that he's so talented yeah at just about everything but being able to do everything doesn't always turn into something right you're like and give me the 12 songs that are really good and don't give me 50 from three albums and two that you dug up from like tapes from a while ago or whatever which is yeah. why that solo album was so good but that's why this is an even more perfect project for him because he can right. just no, he can't like, screw this up lose his mind in the, in the margins yeah he can't screw it up so you and can I'm find so those excited. songs song clips on uh, his but, instagram feed which is mr ryan adams right Spelled out M I S T E R, yeah, but we don't know what he's going to do with it yet. I mean, like, I, I don't. I, I would imagine I, that he would put this out. I mean, yeah, someone like he has Taylor Swift's blessing. He yes, could sell it for he charity. Does. He could just put it up for free, whatever, you know. But I'm, I'm I am curious. But it, it, that that has been like soul restoring, like in a yeah, it's a, just been a, very cool week. to see him do it for sure. It, but soul restoring after a rough week for the 20th Century Fox Corporation over the weekend <laughs> for. Uh, <laughs> You know, for fans of Sunday Night TV, like it's been a rough couple days. Uh, so all right, man. Just happy to come back to. Well, this. we'll be back. It's been a fun one. Uh, very, very chin scratchy podcast yeah. today. Um, no, idea forward, culture disrupting. <laughs> we'll be back next week. We'll do some Mr. Robot. Well, maybe we'll look forward to a little bit of fall television or like the next, like the do a little Ooh. bit of a preview since Ooh, we have some stuff coming. Yeah, why not? 
We'll see. In po- if we do it next week, we'll be in person out that's in right. LA, so that'll be interesting. That's right. Or maybe we'll take the week off. Who knows? We'll keep guessing. You never know with us. Or maybe we'll record uh, uh, Red, All the right, last well, Taylor Swift album. Before we go, I just need to take a quick break from our sponsor this week. New York City, the 1960s. Prostitution, illegal gambling, and after-hour clubs were a part of the scene. It was called Fun City since everyone was having a good time and no one was getting hurt. The gangsters were making money and the cops were taking a cut. Enter the Public Morals Division. They were the city's landlords. If you wanted to be in business, you had to pay the rent. But the younger generation of mobsters was coming of age, and these guys wanted more money, more power, more respect. The line that separated the good guys from the bad was about to snap. It's New York like you've never seen it, and a story that's never been told. From creator Edward Burns, don't miss the series premiere of TNT's Public Morals, Tuesday, August 25th at 10, 9 central, only on TNT. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.